0: Thank you guys. Thank you to the praise team. We, uh, just as a reminder to everyone that next Sunday, does anybody know what next Sunday is? What wonderful holiday next Sunday is? Yes, it is. It's Mama's Day. And uh, we're going to honor all the ladies of our church next Sunday and uh, looking forward to being together uh, for that time. Um, We are concluding, wrapping up our series on 1 John today. And so, uh, again, just as a little bit of reminder of where we've been I kind of walk you forward to where we what we're going to cover today a couple of things here is that john in this letter that he writes here of first his first letter uh, is writing to the churches of asia minor and so these churches have been infiltrated by people who claim to be christians uh, but they really hold a different philosophical system, a different understanding of the world and of sin than what the scriptures teach than what Jesus taught. And there was a name for these folks. They were called Docetists. If you remember, the Docetists believed that all physical matter was evil, that all the physical stuff of the universe was, was evil, was inherently bad. And so they denied the fact that Jesus actually became flesh, that God in, uh, inhabited human flesh, because their thinking was how could something whose a God who's holy, um, inhabits something that's evil, um, human flesh. And so they taught that that it only seemed like Jesus was here in the flesh, that he only appeared to be in the flesh, but really he was more of an apparition. He was more of a ghost figure as he was walking around on the earth. And so that's what the docetists taught. And so John writes this letter to help the local believers in the churches in Asia Minor discern who these docetists are, and why it is that their teaching is not in keeping with Scripture. It's not in keeping with correct doctrine. Well, he gives some indicators as to how we can pick out these docetists, how the, uh, how the early churches could identify the fakes and the phonies who were there among them. And so one of those indicators we covered two weeks ago, he says it there in 1 John chapter 3, and verse... Uh, 10. He says, "This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. The Docetists. Um, Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God." Again, we covered that two weeks ago. If you weren't here for that sermon two weeks ago, or if it's kind of fuzzy in your mind, I'd encourage you to jump online, go back, take a listen. There was some rich theology that we were teaching there, and so I'd encourage you to do that. But then he shares a second indicator there in verse 10 of how they can pick out these Docetists among them. He says. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Here comes the second indicator. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. See, John has this theme of loving one another, of loving your brothers and your sisters in Christ, of how we treat one another as one of the indicators of how you can tell whether these docetists really are believers or not. And so um, John develops this idea of loving one another all throughout the letter. And so that's where we want to focus today is not so much on the love that God has for us, but on this horiz- am I right? horizontal, that's vertical. Right. The horizontal love that we have toward our fellow man. Okay? So that's where we're heading today. Our text comes from 1 John chapter 4 beginning at verse 19, 1 John chapter 4. And as is our custom, I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 19, 20, and 21. Here we go. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You may be seated. And this, this concept of loving your brother, again, it's developed all throughout the letter, but here in this particular couple of verses, perhaps is the most poignant statement in all of the letter where John makes this, um, makes this these remarks. So let's kind of walk through these verses together. He says, hey, look, We love because God first loved us. Now, I've shared with you in previous sermons, probably going back months, going back years, this whole idea of how in the Greek language there are multiple words that translate into the one English word of love. One of those Greek words is the word storge, and storge is referring to family love. It's like how I feel toward my uncle. It's how I feel toward my cousins. It's this family, you know, how we feel about our church family. It's this family kind of love that we have toward one another. And so that word, though, storge, does not appear anywhere in the New Testament. That's not the love that the Bible is talking about when it talks about love. There's another word in the Greek language that translates into the one English word um, love, and that's the word eros. Eros is referring to romantic kind of love. And again, when we're talking about love in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament does the word eros ever appear. Um, There's a third word in in the in the Greek, that does show up in the New Testament, and that's the word philos, and this is where we get our word Philadelphia from. It's this idea of brotherly, warm, brotherly love, and so um, that, and so again. Uh, that's that's a kind of love that the New Testament refers to, but it's never the kind of love that God shows. There's a specific word in the New Testament, in the Greek, that refers to the kind of love. When it says that God is love, here in John's letter, when it talks about God's kind of love, when it talks about how God so loved the world, the word that's used there in the Greek language is the word agape, and the word agape is referring to a self-sacrificial kind of love. It's referring to a love whose motive and whose welfare is purely for the encouragement for the benefit of the one of the object to whom it's loving. It's not trying to get something back in return. It's purely self-sacrificial. And this kind of love, this agape love, is God's kind of love. So when the Bible says that God so loved the world, John chapter 3 and verse 16, that word there in the Greek is that God, for God so agape, he self-sacrificed himself. That's the how the how much, that's the kind of love that God has for us. And so John says, hey, look, we love, going back to 1 John chapter 4, and verse 19, we love, we agape. We're able to do that, he said, because God first agaped us. Because we've met God, because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us, it's given birth to this trait that is... God's. We can can then love the self sacrificial kind of love because God first loved us that way. We've been touched by God with his agape kind of love, and because of that, we know what it is, we feel what that's like, and so we're able to share that with our fellow man. We agape because God first us. Verse 20 If anyone says, I love God, I agape him, yet hates his brother, so got the vertical right, I love God but yet doesn't feel that same way toward his brother, he says, that person is a liar. He goes on to say, for anyone who does not love his brother, horizontal relationship, whom he has seen, cannot possibly love God this way, whom he has not seen. John's idea here is that if someone does not have agape love toward another person, if he or she does not have even a self sacrificial bone in their body on the horizontal relationship toward their fellow man, he's saying, that's evidence. That's an indicator that this person's never met God in the first place. Because who is God? God is love. God is agape. And so again, it's an indicator here that if you don't feel an ounce of agape on the horizontal, then there's no way that you've met in this vertical relationship with God. Verse 21. And he has given us this command that whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, here's a question. Who has given us the command? The command is that whoever loves his, loves God must also love his brother. But who has given this command? Because he said he has given us this command. Well, who are you talking about? Well, he's very specifically, tell, uh, he, John knows exactly who gave us this command. Flip over in your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and this on this particular occasion, John's gospel, this is Thursday night. Jesus is going to be on the cross on Friday morning. He's just finished the Last Supper with the disciples, okay? So this is the last couple of hours of Jesus' life before he'll be on the cross. And he's just finished the Last Supper. And after the Last Supper, he starts giving some teachings here. Um, and so one of the teachings he shares, John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, middle of the verse, a new command, unique, right? Not something y'all have heard before, a new command I give to you. And what's the command? Love agape, there's the word, love one another in a self-sacrificial way. As I have agape you, as I have laid down my life for you, so you must do the same for one another. So you must love one another. Who gave the command? Who gave this new command? Yeah, there we go. They hadn't fallen asleep yet. That's good. So Jesus gave this command. Again, John chapter 15 and verse 17, Jesus says, This is my command that you love, that you agape one another, this self-sacrificial kind of love. So you see the concept that John is putting forth here in these verses here in 1 John chapter 4 verses 19 through 21, and he develops all through the letter, this idea that if God is love, that if God is agape, if God is self-sacrificial, giving away myself for pure benefit of the object of the one to whom I'm loving, looking for nothing in return, then because we've met God, because we've entered into a real and personal relationship with him, because his Holy Spirit lives inside of us, not saying we're going to feel that way toward everybody all the time, but there has to be the presence. There has to be some agape flowing out of our life. And that is evidence, John says, an indicator that, hey, look, there is a relationship on the vertical plane with our Father in heaven. All right, so that's our text for today, that's our treatment of this topic, and so that brings us to asking that question we ask every week around here, you're so excited about it, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I really appreciate all this stuff, it's good to hear a little theology lesson about how God is love. he has this unique kind of love, and how the vertical and the horizontal, that's really cool how you do all that, but I mean, how is this going to help me, you know getting groceries and getting the kids off their summer vacation coming up it's coming up and yeah amen praise the lord right get some amens there but uh anyhow so how i mean what difference does all this make to my everyday life let's talk a little bit about that you know a person as we're just thinking about folks and living life and stuff a person can look really good on the outside Like, we can put a smile on, we can go into social settings, we can hold our own, we can uh, be kind and, and, and hospitable toward other folks, we can look really good on the outside, but on the inside, something can still be missing. Something can still be not quite right. And one of the things sometimes that's not quite right, like we look good on the outside, we say all the right things, but maybe sometimes what doesn't look quite right on the inside is that this agape hasn't produced, hasn't come into action in our life in the form of what I would call in a word, compassion. Compassion, right? I'm driving down the road yesterday. I'm on my way back from graduation at Point University down in Peachtree City area, and I come up onto, off of the I-20 uh, exit 82 or 83, whatever it is, right there at Conyers, right? And there's a guy standing there on the side road. He's got a sign out. You ever see those folks? He's got a sign out. And usually I just drive on by those folks. But his sign was unique, you know what his sign said? And I'm thinking of my sermon. It said, God loves you. Oh. <laughs> you know, I'm preaching on that tomorrow, right? So I'm like, okay. Lord, I, I, I get you. So sometimes, you know, as, as the Lord impresses, as the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart, and so I, hand, I went round down my window. He gave me a God bless you. I gave him a God bless you. And uh, we exchanged a little bit of cash. So um, I don't know what he did with it, but... Praise the Lord, you know, just following his leading. All right, so, uh, but anyhow, God loves you. That was a good sign. So the idea here is that we have compassion. And compassion, friends, is the ability to identify with another person's needs. It's the ability to see someone else who is struggling and something welling up inside of us to want to meet that need, to want to reach out and help and to share and lift that burden that that person's going through. You know, what's interesting is that when we read the New Testament, there's this very familiar phrase that pops up all through the New Testament, through the Gospels. And that statement is this. It says, and Jesus had compassion. And Jesus, you see that all the time. It's repeated over and over again. Jesus had compassion on her. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Jesus had compassion on the leper. Jesus had compassion over and over again. We hear that phrase repeated. The Bible tells us, friends, that God is a God of compassion. Compassion is agape love, self-sacrificial, giving away of myself, looking for nothing in return. Compassion is agape love in action. That's what it is. So when you feel compassion, when you act on behalf of compassion, friends, that is God's agape love driving you toward a certain action. And the Bible tells us that when we pour our heart out to God in pain, that God listens to every word of it because God is a God of compassion. The Bible says that God feels every tear that falls from our eye. Why? Because God is a God. He's agape, and his agape in action is a God of compassion. This is why 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Cast all your anxiety, all your fears on him. Why? Because he cares. He's a God of compassion. He cares for you. Listen, folks, if you're here this morning and you've never made a real and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, then I'm telling you that if you do and when you do, you get some tremendous benefits that go along with that. You get the benefit of eternal life. You get to spend eternity in heaven. With the Lord and with your family that have gone on before you who knew the Lord. You get the great benefit of your sins being forgiven. We sang about that this morning and your sins washed away and remembered no more. It's a wonderful benefit. But you also get to connect with the living God of the universe who cares about you. Who feels every struggle that you're going through who wants to wipe away every tear from your eye, friends, who feels every heartache and every struggle, God will be there for you. Frankly, I don't know why more people wouldn't want to enter into a relationship with a God like this, who is a God of compassion. You say, but Gordon, what if I've already made a decision for Jesus? What if I already know that God is like this? What does any of this have to do with my life today? Great question, and let's see if we can answer that. The answer is that the Bible doesn't simply stop with telling us that God is a God of compassion. The Bible tells us that God wants for us to be this way as well. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19, 20, and 21. If somebody says, I love God, yet they hate their brother, John says, that person doesn't know God. That person's a liar. Because if we know him, who is agape and agape in action is compassion if we know him then that's going to result in agape flowing out at least a little bit right at least a little bit amen right agape and compassion in act. agape in action compassion flowing out from us god wants for us to be people who ask others around us how are you doing God wants for us to be the kind of people who care about the needs and the hurts and the struggles of others. He wants for us to meet people with compassion. That's why Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, agape in action. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, agape in action. In action, Proverbs chapter thirty-one, verses eight and nine. Speak up, speak up. um, uh, Solomon says, "Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute." Speak up, verse nine. For and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Friends, this is why Cory Tenboom, if you ever heard the story of Cory Tenboom who helped Jews uh, get out of Germany who were being saw, you know carried off to the concentration camps and she helped them escape Germany and put her own life at risk and ended up in a concentration camp herself, had her father die, had her mother die, had her uncle and aunt die and she and her sister were abused horribly friends why did she do what she do, did and put at great risk herself and her own family because she had compassion she knew the god of agape and that agape in action looked like compassion why did mother teresa pour out her life on behalf of poor children that the world had forgotten and didn't care about and people who were dying and lying in the streets in the india friends it's because she knew the god of agape And the God of agape in action look like compassion. This is why here at Hebron we have volunteers who regularly help out at Acts, a food pantry and clothing closet here in our area. This is why in just a couple of weeks we're going to be down here cooking 100 chicken halves for you all and then another 100 chicken halves that we're going to send on to the Salvation Army Center for their homeless shelter. Why? It's because of compassion. That is compassion or agape love in action. Friends, the Bible is clear that when a person becomes a Christian, that compassion becomes a part of their spiritual DNA to be helpers of the helpless, to be defenders of the weak, to be friends of those in need, and to do it all in the name of Jesus, friends. Compassion is God's agape love in action. You say, Gordon, I see what you're saying. I agree with that. I think it's really great, preaches good stuff. But I mean, how do I get more of that? Right? I want to get a little bit more of that. I want to be able to ha- be a person who has more compassion on the inside of me, who feels more deeply and sees the hurts and the struggles of people around me. How do I get to a place where I got more compassion coming in and welling up on the inside of me? How does that happen? Well, the answer comes to us from the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter. Second Corinthians chapter one. I had them flipped. It's Second Corinthians chapter one. But I got to tell you. You're probably not going to like the answer that we get. You're not going to like it. All right? So just prepare yourself. Here we go. This is how we get more compassion. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that, key words, so that we can then comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. What is God telling us here? He's telling us that the way he produces compassion in us is by sending trouble our way. say, well, Gordon, I ain't got no trouble in my life. Well, just wait a little while. (laughs) Because that's the way the world works, right? Uh, Trouble comes our way. Strife comes into our life. Difficulty, it happens. We live in a fallen world, and God uses that fallen stuff that we experience. God uses those struggles that we go through, friends, to develop compassion in us. When we suffer, that's just what the Scripture's saying. When we go through heartache, we ourselves become very familiar with those who are experiencing it in the present. Suffering teaches us things about compassion, friends, that we cannot learn in a college class by reading a book in a Bible study group or by listening to a sermon Suffering teaches us things about compassion that can only be learned through the doorway of pain and heartache and disappointment and failure. I told you, you were not going to like the answer, right? But that's how God develops compassion in us. To put it another way, suffering is what God uses to remove us or to remove from us our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Any college football fans in here? College football fans in here? Yeah, a few, right? Sure. we we live in college town, of course, we've got some college football fans. Well, I want to tell you about a particular college football coach. You're not going to like him at first because of where he coached at. Uh, In 1992, a guy by the name of Gene Stallings uh, was coaching the University of Alabama to a national championship game. But one of the things that people don't know about Gene Stallings is that he was very well known, especially in the early part of his career, as being a tough, rough coach. I mean, one of the worst. He demanded 100% commitment from his players uh, to the point that if they weren't given 100% on the field, he would bench them. If they weren't given 100% in practice, he would kick them off the team. If they didn't have the athletic ability that he felt like he needed out of them, even if they were given 100%, he'd put them off of the team. I mean, he was a really tough, tough coach to play for, and he had that kind of a reputation. But in 1962, Stallings became the father of a Down syndrome little boy named Johnny. Stallings said for those first 10 years, they were really difficult. He said a bottle could take an hour. Potty training took five years. He said, his first steps of our child took three and a half years. I watched him as he held on to the back of the dog. And here comes a really intriguing part of his statement. Stalling said, all of this struggle and pain began to change my personal and professional attitudes. All of a sudden, I began to develop a whole lot more tolerance for the less gifted. If a kid wasn't big enough or strong enough but gave his all, I'd let him stay on the team. In 1997, Gene Stallings retired from football and began the Stallings Center in Tuscaloosa, which ministers to hundreds of children all throughout the Tuscaloosa area, just like his son Johnny, every single day. And here's the question. Uh, So here's the question. How did God transform Stallings' heart? How did God change him? Through his son, right? Through his son. How did God take this old crusty, football coach heart, right? That was hard-nosed and give him a heart of compassion. It was through Johnny. Um, Johnny passed away in 2008 and in an interview with Focus on the Family not long after, Stallings had this to say. The thing that I thought was the worst thing to have ever happened to me in my life turned out to be the best thing. He said, my life would not have been nearly as rich If it had not been for Johnny. The Lord gave me a blessing in disguise. The truth is. I ended up being a better person. As a result. Of my son. Look here friends. There are a lot of us here today. Who are hurting. There are a lot of us who have pain in our life. Things that are going on. That are out of our control. Or that we don't understand why. What's happening is happening. Um. And we don't understand why God would be allowing this to happen. Well, I'm here to say to you today that on behalf of Almighty God, don't dare accept some cheap theology or some superficial explanation that says that you just need to name it and claim it and get rid of the devil in your household. Friends, that is garbage doctrine. That's what that is. Let me tell you why God has allowed this suffering in your life. It's because God is not, is not Santa Claus. He's not some genie that you rub the lamp and God just gives you your wishes and makes all of your troubles go away. That's not who God is, friends. He's developing something in you. He's allowing you to go through, whatever it may be, you fill in the blank, to develop inside of you a heart of compassion. You know, there are some areas of our Christian growth like true compassion for other people that you can never obtain except through the doorway of suffering. And that's just the way it is. It's the way it was for Abraham. It's the way it was for Moses. Think about those guys' lives. It's the way it was for Ruth and Naomi. Uncertainty was what they woke up to every day. It's the way it was for Esther it's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. And friends, that's the way it is for you and I. Forget about the nonsense of the prosperity gospel, where all that God wants for us is our health and our wealth and our success. The Bible doesn't say that. it doesn't teach that. Rather what the Bible says is that sometimes God wants for us to be sick. Ask Job. The Bible tells us that sometime God wants for us to fail. Ask David. The Bible says that sometimes God wants for us to suffer. Ask the Lord Jesus. Why? Because sometimes that's the only way that God can teach us to be the kind of men and women that God has called us to be. Ask Gene Stallings. Listen to me, friend. If you're here today and you're suffering and you're in pain, And you're going through deep water in your life today. Listen to me. God's grace will be sufficient for you. God's grace, he will never put on you. That's his promise. More than you can handle. God's grace will be sufficient for you. God will get you through it. And on the other side, you'll be a better person. Remember what Gene Stallings said. The thing that I thought was going to be the worst thing that had ever happened to me in my life turned out to be the very best thing. Folks, God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. Trust him with your suffering. You may never want to go through it again. Say, God, bring on those hard times again. No, I don't want to go back there. But I'm a better person. Because of it. God knew what he was doing. And his grace carried me through. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for speaking to us today. We thank you for the reminder that we see all throughout the pages of Scripture. That you have a plan for our lives. That we don't just suffer and struggle aimlessly. But that, Lord, you're accomplishing things. You are accomplishing things in our heart. You're birthing vision and ministry through our lives because of what we're going through. God, we pray that your agape love in action would bubble up into our hearts. God, that we would feel that kind of compassion, Jesus, that you felt for the crowds, that you felt for the needy that you felt for the struggling, that you felt for the depressed. God, give us hearts filled with compassion. In these moments of quiet as we share your broken body and your shed blood, Holy Spirit, begin that work. Take the crusty off of our heart. Melt our hearts of stone. May we live like Jesus lived,